Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This morning we are going to speak about the parasha, the weekly Torah reading entitled Chayei Sarah. It begins in Genesis 23 verse 1 and continues through Genesis 25 verse 18. Though the parasha begins with the word Chayei Sarah, the life of Sarah, it actually tells us that Sarah dies at age 127 and is buried in the Machpelah cave in Hebron, which Abraham purchases from Ephron the Hittite for 400 shekels of silver. Following the burial of Sarah, the story moves on to tell us about Abraham sending his servant Eliezer to Haran to find a wife for Isaac. At the village well, Eliezer asks God for a sign, and when the maidens come to the well, he will ask for some water to drink. The women who all will offer to give his camels to drink as well as shall be the one destined for Abraham's son. Rebekah, known in Hebrew as Rivka, the daughter of Avraham's nephew Bituel, appears at the well and seems to pass the test that Eliezer has established. Eliezer is invited to their home where he repeats the story of the day's events. Rebekah returns with Eliezer to the land of Canaan, where they encounter Isaac praying in the field. Isaac marries Rebekah, loves her, and is comforted over the loss of his mother, as the text puts it in that order. Abraham, at the end of this week's parasha, takes a new wife, Keturah, which Jewish tradition tells us is really Hagar, the handmaiden of of Sarah, who uh, was the mother of Ishmael. And he fathers six additional sons, according to the Torah, but only Isaac is designated as his heir. The Torah portion ends by telling us that Abraham dies at 175, is buried in the cave of Machpalah beside Sarah, and that his two eldest sons, Isaac and Ishmael, who have not seen each other since childhood, reunite for the funeral and take responsibility for burying their father. As you can tell, this Torah portion is filled with many challenging episodes. With me to discuss Chaye Sarah, the Torah portion, is Rabbi Lawrence Englander. Rabbi Englander is the founding rabbi of Solel Congregation in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada, and he served there since its inception in 1973 until his retirement in 2014, and he now serves as the Rabbi Emeritus for Congregation Solel. He is also now the adjunct rabbi at Temple Sinai in Toronto. Rabbi Englander received his doctorate of Hebrew letters from Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in the field of Jewish mysticism and rabbinics. 
He has taught in the Religious Studies Department at York University in Toronto and at the Leo Beck College in London, England. He has written several articles on Jewish mysticism, as well as a book entitled Mystical Study of Ruth, published by Scholars Press. Another passion of Rabbi Ellender is Zionism as understood by the American Reform Movement, a subject on which he has written and edited articles. In 2005, Rabbi Englander was appointed as a member of the Order of Canada for his work in community relations. Welcome, Rabbi Englander, to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, I look forward to our conversation. Well, I as well, and I'm sure our listeners too. Now, as the listeners know, there's been a brief introduction to the parasha, Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, and I'm wondering if there's a particular section of the parasha that you'd like to discuss this morning. Yes, actually, I'd like to start right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 23, uh, after the death of Sarah, Abraham's uh, quest to bury her. Great. So let me read that for our audience. And those of you who may have a copy of the Bible with you, we're going to be reading in uh, Genesis 23, as Rabbi Englander said, beginning uh, on verse 3 in the English. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and stranger among you. Sell me some property for the burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. The text continues, Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my Lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field, accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Once again, Ephron answered Abraham, listen to me, my Lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms, weighed out for him the price He had named in the hearing of the Hittites 400 shekels of silver according to the weight current among the merchants. And so this section ends in the following way. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of the city. Afterwards, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, 
which the text tells us is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. It's a long uh, episode, a long narrative, filled with some interesting um, verses. And Rabbi Englander, what catches your attention first here? Okay, away we go. There's obviously a bit of a dance, a verbal dance going on here. And if any of you have visited uh, Middle Eastern countries and have gone to the uh, marketplace, uh, the souk uh, or the shuk in Israel, you know that uh, there's no price tag on an object, but rather the purchase goes through a series of bargainings. So the customer expresses interest in a certain item. The merchant will quote uh, a very deliberately high price, the customer will parry back with a very low price, and it'll go back and forth and back and forth as they get closer and closer to the middle until they finally agree on a purchase price and the deal is done, unless they don't agree, and then the customer walks away and the merchant is stuck with the, uh, with the merchandise. So that- you're suggesting that the description of the dialogue between Abraham and the king of the Hittites is really a reflection of that Middle Eastern uh, dynamic. Except where it differs, and that's what makes this story so unique, that they don't bargain, they don't dicker with the price, but rather, uh, first of all, the first part of the dance is the Hittites say to Abraham, look, just take any one of our caves. Uh, um, it's yours for the asking. Just bury Sarah there and, and it'll be in our property. And that wasn't good enough for Abraham. And why was that? What's your uh, intuition about why that wasn't good enough for Abraham to take the uh, property without buying it? In a sense, to be uh, loaned to him. He calls himself a resident alien, a ger toshav. So what Abraham is really bent on doing here is to have his own possession that he owns. Now, in order to do that, he's willing to pay the first price that Ephron offers, which is absolutely exorbitant uh, in terms of what land would be worth at that time. So my question is, why would he do that and buy that land at such a crazy price? To do that, I think we have to put this story into wider context. And uh, in doing so, I I remember my teacher uh, and Rabbi Gartens as well, uh, Rabbi Hanan Brichto, uh, may he rest in peace, at, uh, at Hebrew Union College, who kind of guided us along with this. The first verse that we have to take a look at to understand this uh, story about Machpelah uh, is in Genesis chapter 37. And for those of you that have uh, a Bible handy, you may want to turn to that. And I'm going to start reading from around verse uh, 31. If you remember what happens is Joseph with the coat of many colors, is sent out to basically spy on his brothers and to make sure they're, they're tending the sheep properly. The brothers, who don't like him in the first place, capture him. They eventually sell him as a slave, but they take his, coat of many, his ornamental coat and they dip it in goat's blood and then they bring it back to their father Jacob. And here's what they say from verse 32. We found this. Please examine it. Is it your son's tunic or not? Jacob did recognize it and said, My son's tunic, a savage beast, has devoured him. Joseph was torn by a beast. 
Notice that Jacob is forming his own conclusion here, uh, which they lead him on to. So Jacob rent his clothes, put sackcloth on his loins, and observed mourning for his son many days. All his sons and daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, saying, and this is the key, No, I will go down mourning to my son in Sheol. Now, Sheol is the biblical underworld. You could kind of think of it uh, similar to the Greek uh, underworld Hades, where it's under the earth, it's kind of like a big cave, and when you die, according to the biblical narrative, you lead this shade-like existence in Sheol. Your happiness, your relative happiness in Sheol, will depend on how your loved ones in the living world continue to honor your name and commemorate you with the proper rituals. Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Since Joseph predeceased him, he now looks forward to a life in eternity in Sheol in misery. So this is the tragic part of it. So um, one piece of evidence we pick up in this passage is that your afterlife is going to be dependent on the love that is born to you by your uh, descendants, by those that you leave behind. And so could you make that a little clearer as to the connection between this section on Joseph and the section that we were reading in the Machpelah? Ah, yes, because we have to add yet another verse in order to uh, build up our evidence here, okay? okay? The next verse is in the Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus chapter 20, and to look at verse 12, it says, Honor your father and your mother, that you may long endure on the land that Adonai your God is assigning to you. Now, we know very well, and our biblical ancestors knew very well, that just because you honor your parents doesn't mean you're going to live a long life. That's not the way things work. Except I think this commandment is not meant individually, it's meant collectively. If, as a people, as a community, we honor our ancestors and respect them by continuing our love for them, by remembering them favorably, and by performing the proper funerary and memorial rituals, then by doing that, our collective life on the land will belong. So what we've added here is not only one's uh, survivors expressing respect both um, emotionally and ritually for one who has died, but also the land now becomes important too. This is going to get back to Abraham and why he wanted to buy that particular cave rather than just borrow it. And so now we come to one final verse, which I think will will, will close the circle on this. And it's Deuteronomy chapter 21. And I'm going to start reading from verse 18. If a person has a wayward and defiant son who does not heed his father or mother and does not obey them even after they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his town at the public place of his community. They shall say to the elders of his town, This son of ours is disloyal and defiant. He does not heed us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Thereupon, the judges of his town shall stone him to death. Thus shall you sweep out evil from your midst. All Israel will hear and be afraid. So to modern ears, that sounds pretty stark. Yes, I'm hoping you're not suggesting to our listeners that if they have a recalcitrant child, that they follow this verse. 
If we did that today, Rabbi Garten, I don't think any kid would live beyond the age of 17 if they had managed to make it that far, right? But why does the Bible issue such a stringent penalty, the ultimate penalty of death, for a child who mouths off at his parents, which we consider to be fairly normal these days? Link that up with what it says in Exodus about honoring one's father and mother. Link it up with the fact that Joseph is no longer alive, uh, uh, or so Jacob thought, to uh, honor him when he dies, and link it back to Abraham's desperate need to find a burial site for Sarah in order to honor her properly. Remember, at this time, he didn't, ha- he didn't have a child. Uh, oh, he did, yes, but the, the child wasn't there. Isaac was somewhere else. Right. So I think what the Bible is saying here is this. One of the primary functions of a child or of anyone who survives some, a loved one who dies, one of the primary purposes is to honor that person's memory after they die. If this son is not honoring his parents while they're alive, then surely we cannot expect him to honor them after they die, and he thereby forfeits his own right to live. It's that serious. So if we, in yeah, order for you to feel like you totally understand the section that we've been looking at uh, in our Torah portion in Genesis 23, you feel, as you've so eloquently said, that we should make the connections between um, the Joseph story, the Ten Commandments, and then Deuteronomy, correct? Yes. And that when you make all four of those connections, what becomes very clear to you as a scholar of Torah, as uh, one who digs deeper into the text than the simple literal um, intentionality, is that the purchase of the cave foreshadows the very nature of the relationship between Israel and the land— and they become more than just resident aliens, and it foreshadows the very uh, depth of relationships that one that the living have for the dead. Am I uh, summarizing correctly? Oh, you've got that beautifully, yeah. I, I mean, there are four words that come together here to put it all together. It's kin, cult, land, and afterlife. So the kin are the relatives who survive the person who has died. Um, in this case, it's Sarah's husband, uh, Abraham, who, who must honor her, uh, honor her memory, or, or who feels that he must. That's kin. Then we go to cult. One must perform the proper funerary rituals and memorial rituals in order to perpetuate the memory of the person who has died, and that's going to affect their relative happiness in Sheol. So it's important for us to do that. All right, for the sake of the of the person who has died. Then we get to the land. In order for the kin to perform the proper cult, they must also do so on the land that is theirs. And that that, that is tied in, that the burial place of our ancestors is also the land on which we live, on which we honor them. And that all these put together affect the happiness or the relative uh, serenity of the afterlife of those who have gone before us. And as you so beautifully mentioned, I think that helps us to understand the strong visceral connection that Jewish people have with the land of Israel. 
they that this s- is a- they this- see this as the essential um, cemetery of their ancestors. Not only the cemetery, but the living arena on which they live now. Ah, so it's we've both. taken that step, the next step, right? right. That so that if our listeners are uh, moving back and forth between the texts, what Rabbi Englander has suggested is Abraham is purchasing the land so that it can be transferred through the generations, and therefore each generation um, subsequent to him can have the opportunity to feel a sense of ownership with the kin's their kinspeople who are buried there. And then the living have the opportunity to perpetuate that relationship through their um, cultic behavior. And in that way, to some degree, it affirms the verse in the Ten Commandments, which says you shall honor your mother and father so that you may have a long, prosperous life on the land. That's a wonderful Um, journey to take the listener on. Thank you so much. What that means is that Abraham has made a transition in this story that goes right down to the present. He has transformed him and his descendants from a resident alien people on the land to an aboriginal people on the land. Say that again so people can have a moment to think about that, because that's really, um, in our Canadian context, though some of our listeners may not be Canadian, but in our Canadian context, that's a significant statement. Yes. Say it again. Once again, Abraham makes the tradition, uh, the transition in this story from being a resident alien, a temporary resident, to being an Aboriginal people for himself and his descendants. How that plays out in modern times is that as Jews, we consider ourselves to be aboriginal to the state of Israel, to the land of Israel. And for those of us with a liberal point of view, we also understand that the Palestinians feel the same way and that they have an aboriginal claim to the land as well. Are are you suggesting that um, the story um, gives preeminence to the... Um, Jewish claim of Aboriginal status? No, because the Palestinians have their, their narratives as well. So I'm saying that we have two peoples with an equally strong claim, Aboriginal claim, to the land. And that's one of the tragedies of, uh, of the modern uh, Middle Eastern conflict, that uh, somehow we have to come to uh, a way in which two Aboriginal peoples can share the land in peace. So some people would, of course, argue with you that the aboriginal status of Abraham and his descendants predates any um, aboriginal status for a um, Palestinian people, not to argue about the descendants of the Hittites who might have had an aboriginal status, but Palestinians in general don't... um, see themselves related to Hittites or Amorites or Jebusites. There are some who do, by the way. Ah, yeah. okay. But in general, um, this is a challenging interpretation to suggest that Aboriginal rights can be uh, affirmed 
by Abraham, particularly through that transition from a ger toshav, a resident alien, um, by the act of purchasing the land, he now becomes um, a resident of the land and more than just a resident, but an aboriginal, a f- yes. uh, uh, one who holds um, ownership in the land. Yes. Not just someone who dwells there at the discretion of the owner. Yes. yes? Well, that is really a very challenging interpretation, Um, and it may begin to help our listeners understand why the cave of Machpelah, which still can be visited today in the ancient city of Hebron, is such a contentious area that Jews worship at the cave of Machpelah and think of it as a sacred uh, place, uh, a makom, a holy place, and um, residents of Hebron who uh, claim lineage to Palestinians also claim some sort of ancient connection. I don't think holiness would fit with their uh, narrative, but certainly claim ancient lineage and ancient connection to that place. Now let's take a look at that as modern individuals who look critically at the Bible. Uh, Archaeologists will tell you that the chances of the patriarchs and matriarchs actually being buried in those tombs in Hebron is rather close to zero percent. But that's not the point. The point is we are looking at a people's narrative, and narratives don't necessarily have to be factually true. They're viscerally true. So there's and, two and, kinds of truth. There's a historical veracity, one uh, facts that can be verified in some right. manner or form, but there's also the truth that a people create for itself over the millennium. Right, and to claim that my narrative is true and therefore your narrative is false doesn't get us anywhere. I think what we need to do is to learn each other's narratives and respect each other's narratives uh, as a way to move forward. But I'd like to apply this in a personal way to all of us. We only now, have about 60 seconds. so I All want right, I can as, do it. Good. Okay. Um, we're living in a world where our children, grandchildren, other relatives are scattered around the world. We're not necessarily going to live in the same place for several gener- generations. Therefore, I think what each of us has to think for ourselves is, how do I want to be remembered? If my children aren't living in the same city as me, if they don't get to visit my grave that often, if they're not on the same land or in the same home in which they grew up, how can we take this lesson and apply it to ourselves today, where we talk about remembering our loved ones uh, with respect and with love and perpetuating their memory, even though the land itself may be much wider than it was in biblical times. I think that's a challenge we need to think about. It is a wonderful challenge for our listeners. I hope those of you who've been listening this morning have um, taken the time to look at the textual uh, connections that Rabbi Englander has offered to us. On behalf of Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts and our listeners, I want to thank Rabbi Lawrence Englander for being our guest this morning. You can hear a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes 
or on the website of chri.ca. For those of you who are so inclined and wish to write a message uh, to either Rabbi Englander about this show or any show that you might have listened to, you can send an email to jff at chr.ca. And on behalf of Rabbi Englander and myself, Rabbi Stephen Garten, I wish you shalom and a good day. Behold.